Well, hey, y'all. It's Gene Nathan. It is Crosstown Conversations. And um, for those of you who read my newsletter, you know that I referred to the Hunter Full Moon, which is a very powerful full moon, and we're in the waning of it. And I always say the waning of a full moon is the worst time of the month. It's always a little scary. Sure enough, here in New Orleans, man, we've had a, a kind of rough week or two. And um, I, I, for anybody who doesn't believe in the in the effects of a moon, ask any television reporter and ask any police officer what a full moon is like in the newsroom and in the police station. It is rough. No, it's crazy. It's there's a, there's an effect, and waning to me is always the worst time. It's like that's when stuff that I can't say on the air happens, right? And um, and here it was the collapse of the Hard Rock building, and then the uh, the weird collapse partial of the of the cranes, um, and and all kinds of other crazy stuff. However, uh, not to mention the utter and ridiculous impeachment chaos in Washington, and not to mention our bizarre withdrawal from Syria and just letting Russia and Turkey you know, have their way with the territory, with us, with the Kurds, the whole thing. I mean, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to get on that. I really didn't mean to get on that. We're going to talk about the film festival, and we're going to talk with two guys who are a part of that film world and are doing really great things. We're going to talk about a film that they did that is my my most favorite current Film, a film called The True Don Quixote that is now available in various ways, streaming. So they're going to tell you how to view it. And I really want you to view it. And I really want you to send me your comments on it because I want to test my judgment. I mean, I'm usually a really pretty severe critic of things. And I'm crazy about this film. It's called The True Don Quixote. And it takes place in St. Bernard Parish. Do you get the connection? <laughs> no? We'll tell you. We'll tell you what it is. But I'm here with Chris Poche, who is a screenwriter and a director of that film, and also with Trey Bravant, who is uh, both a producer, a filmmaker, um, but he also heads up an organization called the Louisiana Film and Entertainment Association. And I'm going to start the program off asking them the question that I asked in my newsletter, for those of you who see it. Um, What's happening? I mean, I, I was commenting on the fact that when I left television news, I wanted to be a music video producer, and I couldn't get money together to do something on the Nevels, on Tucson. I mean, it was it was a struggle. There wasn't action here. And now 25% of the 200 films plus being shown in this film festival were shot here in Louisiana. So... There's something going on, and it's not just about tax incentives, and hopefully it's about more of a really um, grounded industry where we don't just come in and shoot locations for the tax incentive, but we're making films from bottom up. Either one of you can, can start. Do you want to start, Trey? What's going on? What's this all about? How did this happen? You know, I, I, woke, I went to sleep one night, and I couldn't get a film produced, and I, and I wake up and Everybody's making films in Louisiana. Uh, I, I think the secret's out. Oh, no. Am I on? Yeah, you are. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I think the secret's out. What's the secret? Um, that Besides what, how much fun it is. Louisiana and New Orleans, there's a great place to tell stories. 
and there's a, a wonderful community of talented filmmakers and storytellers that have both that have both um, uh, been born and bred here, and there's some that have been uh, decided to make New Orleans their home. Uh, one of the things that I've seen in the last decade uh, is that because I'm also tied into a film studio here in New Orleans, is that a lot of the folks that are... Are you working with the ranch? No, I... Second, I, second line? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. I, uh, Susan Brennan and I created Second Line Stages 10 years ago. Right. And so I... And I'm, I'm also... That was another thing that I was working for Mark Morial, bemoaning the lack of a studio and trying to figure out how to stimulate it happening and then and y'all then, did it. And we, we did it. Yes, we did it. Uh, we're actually 10 years old now, so... Uh, it's a it's a great little landmark. But I've seen a lot of talented individuals uh, come and work on a television show or a film that were based in L.A. and New York, and they now have purchased homes here and become Louisiana residents, and they still work in the revolving production that comes in, but they also have taken steps to create their own narratives and stories here in New Orleans. So I think it's all this wonderful ecosystem that is – really starting to mature is what you're seeing and getting at. Okay, you say ecosystem. So it's more than just, um, you know, less expensive real estate and fun. Tell me more about that ecosystem and storytelling. Yes, I got that. Well, well, listen, I mean, filmmaking has gotten so much easier now. I mean, before they were confined to the two coasts because the cameras weighed 10 million pounds and you had to get your negatives developed and just in the last 15 to 20 years with the advancements of digital technology, mm-hmm. I mean, you have people making feature films, award-winning films on iPhones. Uh, on iPhones. So, <laughs> so that, I think that in combining with um, very incentives across the country, it's created the decentralization of filmmakers. So you don't have to be on the two coasts in order to be a storyteller and a filmmaker. And the resources are here now. The infrastructure is here. That to make them. It. But then there's the marketing of them. Yes. And that's an issue because we're going to talk about your fabulous film that I'm crazy about. But you've had trouble with the marketing side. Well, we just started. Um, okay. I, I would say that the – and I'll let Chris, you can jump in here whenever. But when you're dealing with independent film, we're also the, – there's there's a great thing about being a filmmaker right now and there's a really difficult thing about being a filmmaker right now. The great thing is that there are multiple ways to find your audience and get your content seen and perhaps sold and monetized. Um, on the downside, there's an exorbitant amount. There's there's more content out there than ever, so the competition has gotten greater. So I think finding your path through those two worlds is is quite challenging, especially if you're in the position that Chris and I are in with – uh, Don Quixote is that we're self-distributing, uh, which is has its pluses and its minuses. <laughs> you don't have the the backing of a big studio or a, a label to. But why to, are you self-distributing? That's that's what I want to get at. Uh, we're self-distributing because uh, that's just what the market was guiding us towards. Uh, we we were we we went we have an agent in Los Angeles that uh, basically worked to get us some U.S. theatrical distribution, and the market wasn't uh, wasn't accepting that. And so we had a few offers that were 
paltry. And they were the type that made you think, well, I think we can do better. I think we can give the film the platform it deserves and and create that audience. And so that's why we made that decision about uh, 10 months ago, 10 mo- 12 months, no, 10 months ago to do that. And it's a DIY world with this. The same way that we made it is the way, the way that we sell it. Um, and, and it's not just us. There's this huge experiment going on. Even five, eight years ago, if you were self-distributing, that was kind of like you took your novel to Kinko's, you know, <laughs> self-publishing. Uh, but it's not that way at all anymore. Uh, you can get your your project out there. You can get it seen. It just requires the same kind of mad hustle that getting it made did. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the great news is we can all make movies, and the terrible news is we can all make movies. Uh, so to get attention in the marketplace – is everybody's biggest challenge now. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the film itself for a few minutes because um, nobody can get why we're saying, talking about we this. Just, right. We jumped right to <laughs> No, no, right no, no, that's my fault. That's no, it's my fine. Fault. It's fine. No, that's my fault we're because rolling I, with I was, uh, you know, one question led to another. That's kind of the way I think. Um, but talk about the film. Chris, uh, you know, again, I, I, I'm crazy about it, but I want to hear how you talk about it. Uh, I don't know where to start. This has been... 400 years ago, I just start there. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> a movie, that was our tagline originally, for a movie 400 years in the making, uh, because it sort of was. And it's been, you know, when people say it's a labor of love, Trey and I have, uh, it's all we've really done. It's all I've done for four years. Yeah. And then that was after I finished writing the script. Uh, so it's it's a mad mad process. So start from let's start from Don Quixote. So there isn't anybody who hasn't heard the expression Don Quixote, but I'll bet you one out of a hundred people actually read it. I actually, for some bizarre reason, read it somewhere along in school, but um, it's been a long time since then. And I sort of thought of it in a political context, and it, it was socioeconomic. In your context, it seems to me, and psychological, of course. But tell me, tell me, what was the original story about as you read it, and 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 what is your version of it about? Uh, this is what is so great about this book, which I hadn't read until someone told me a crazy story about the writing of the book and about Cervantes, who was a madman. Um, who wrote it? Yeah, yeah, Miguel de Cervantes, and that story was so interesting that I thought I got to tell read this me, book. tell me, tell me about that um, in short form. <laughs> he was a uh, he lost the use of an arm in the Battle of Lepanto, the, one of the greatest naval battles in history. He was a failed poet. He was a failed playwright. He had been captured by Barbary pirates and was a galley slave for five years until some and his with his brother and his family had enough money to only ransom one of them, and they ransomed his brother. <laughs> they left him there. <laughs> And he, I mean, he had this crazy cursed life. Uh, eventually, some group of nuns and priests who went around buying Christians' freedoms back from the Barbary pirates liberated him. You mean some Catholics did the right thing by some people uh, back there? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a little backlash, maybe. Yeah. Um, which actually plays into the book. And so he started writing this book, and he, uh, it was the first modern novel, is what it's considered. There's a whole. There's a subgenre of literary criticism that's just about this book, um, but it is it is absolutely the first modern novel, and he published it in 1605. And the printer, who was his publisher, kept all the money because there <laughs> there had been no intellectual. Property. Where have we heard that before? Yeah, it rang true. Um, it was etched in a couple of tablets, and somehow <laughs> they got lost. And, 
Yeah, there was no intellectual property law in Spain in 1605. So not only did he not make any money, but somebody else stole the characters and the basic setup and wrote a second, an unauthorized sequel under a pseudonym and made a ton of money because the book was hugely popular all over the Western world. It, was, it had already been translated into like 40 languages. This is too much for me to bear. Yeah, so he had this still a tragic nothing. tragic story. And he was kind of at the end of his his life. He was in his 50s. He was broken. He was depressed. He was in debtor's jail, debtor's prison. Oh, and he'd gotten a job as a clerk on a wharf. But the, the, the unauthorized sequel to his book ticked him off so badly that he wrote a third book, which is his second one. And in that book... Don Quixote and Sancho Panza set out to find the author of the unauthorized book and kill him. <laughs> they know about the first book. They know about the second book. They know they're famous. It's 1615. He writes the first postmodern novel. And it's fantastic. There's a part in that book where he actually – Cervantes steals a character out of the unauthorized book, pulls it into his book. And Don Quixote threatens him at sword point and makes him admit that he is the one true Don Quixote. So wow. I, 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 I was on a whole other movie, and this other this producer told me this story, and I was fascinated with it. So then I read the book, which everyone has heard of Don Quixote, and half the people have seen The Man of La Mancha, which isn't the same story at all. And nobody's really read it, although it's the most published book in the world after so that. So I wonder what I read. I mean, I did I, – I doubt that I read the whole thing. Well, the, I just – I did read parts of it. There are a lot of translations, and I'm sure that the, the translation you might have read was not that great. There's been a recent translation which really made the material so accessible. Well, who wrote that? Edith, Edith Grossman. Edith Grossman. And it's who? Edith, Edith Grossman. Grossman. Edith Grossman. And okay. it is beautiful. Her use of language and the way <sighs> that she captures – Laugh out loud. The so it's Edith Grossman's version of Don Quixote. Yes. You hear that, y'all? That's what you want to read. That okay. is the one. And I, I right. don't know if I had read a, if I had read a different translation. I don't know that it would have inspired me to. So let's go forward from the there to your film. So that I read it, and the craziest thing that struck me early in the book is that it's not a huge story. It's not a big crazy epic. He's this broken little man on a terrible little broken horse. He doesn't really get outside of his neighborhood. He's crazy, so he's just appropriating the things that happen. In the book, he's acknowledged as crazy? Absolutely, unflinchingly. And is that, was that a reflection of the author who you're saying was crazy, or he creates a character that's crazy not knowing that he's crazy? Well, or he, he knows he's crazy and he's creating a character that's crazy, mm, which he, is it? He was not that crazy. Okay. He was, he was broken, but he was brilliant. Okay. Um, he knew exactly what he was doing, every word of that book. Um, but there's no – like some people think of Don Quixote. It's like, well, maybe he's right. Maybe he's – It's the book is just merciless. He's nuts. Everybody knows he's nuts. Sancho knows he's nuts. The narrator knows he's nuts. Everybody he meets knows he's nuts. Um, but there's something just intoxicating about the way he goes about it. And, and to, to your original question, it survived for 400 years because every generation, every era – has read into it what they needed to read into it. There's a sort of a vague quality about it thematically that initially it was about the uh, sort of folly of the Spanish aristocracy and the the books of chivalry that were being published as fact that were all propaganda to try to paper over the Crusades and make knights seem like noble chivalrous guys when they were the crusades which we're still paying for today <laughs> yes, because this very, is what i say is that the resonant. whole islamic 
thing that we're going through, all this crazy ISIS, this is all payback for the Crusades. I saw a kid in an elevator right? this morning, a 10-year-old kid wearing a shirt that was some school that was the Crusaders. And I thought, man, he has no idea. Or maybe he does. But, <laughs> but it's a really low. No, I think the Crusaders, is, isn't that just a... a one of the high school um, uh, teams here, I think. Oh, there's there also is, kids that have shirts that say the Rebels. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That is there true. You know, yeah. Um, and then, so in the Romantic period, it was seen as a as a peon to the power of the written word and literature. And it was he was super romanticized, and people thought that he had some special truth from reading the book. Whereas Cervantes seems to be saying what he got from books was propaganda that made him crazy. Um, and my take on it was that. What he got was the permission to be who he wanted to be and do what he wanted to really do because we're all – I got that from your movie. Good because we're all I so distracted that. and repressed that um, <laughs> we're, we're often afraid to live our lives. And we're, right now we're at a moment where people are trying to express themselves, whether it's their politics or their gender, um, and, and come out into the world, as they say, with their freak flag flying. And nobody flew a flag like that guy. Yeah, um, and it felt like that was the resonant thing here was that part of this malaise that we culturally have is that we are not celebrating the fact that we are all kind of crazy individuals. So is that one of your um, goals in a sense with your script in the film is to make that statement? Yeah. Okay. You, you accomplish that, I think, because that's what – about the movie really grabs both my husband and I that while there there are all these moments that are just plain cold funny, and they are, but right underneath the plain cold funny is the pathos of this tortured man. And as you said, he is nuts. You know he's nuts. You're saying he's nuts, and everybody around him knows it. But, of course, I think... Sancho, really, who I don't know about the original Don Quixote. I don't remember him that well. But in your film, he um, cares about the guy. And that caring, you know, comes – that's that to me is one of the most powerful things about the, the film is that despite his nutsiness and, and taking him on these crazy rides and, and being completely oblivious to his value in a certain way and yet in, at the same time recognizes his value, he's, he's um, cares about him and, and he wants to protect him. He does. My, my basic premise was that because, just because Don Quixote is crazy doesn't mean he's wrong. And he mm -hmm. goes out into the world and everyone he encounters, he changes their lives. And that's all – it's not any more complex than that really. When you're authentic and go out into the world and see things the way that you see them and act authentically, then everyone around you is, is liberated a little bit. So this guy, Tim Blake Nelson, who uh, I am yeah. not familiar with because – you know, I used to be a huge film goer when I lived in New York. Since I've been in New Orleans and, and before the Broad opened or even now with the Broad because he still runs more commercial stuff than he does – art film, but I was an art film girl. I, I, so I don't see that much. So I had not seen him. He's Our film was his 52nd film, I think. What? He's also directed five movies. He's an award-winning playwright. Oh, okay, okay, I'm shamed. Yeah. I'm shamed. I'm <laughs> well, shamed. And this is the year. If you want to see some Tim Blake yeah. Nelson. I hear he's got like three or four or yeah. 
while, while you were talking well, about seeing the pathos through the humor, that is the gift of having Tim Blake Nelson as your lead oh, actor. Oh, his He's face. Just, There's uh, a moment towards the end of the film where nothing's going on. It's, you're just on his face. There's no action, and there's so much going on in his face. It was just, to me, I said if this were like running in the films, I can't imagine that he wouldn't be an Academy Award nominee for this. Am I crazy? No, you're not. He did an extraordinary job. It's a tour de force for him, and and his his career has been, while it's been impressive and amazing, what was interesting about getting Tim on the film was Chris and I were sitting, we had... Uh, hired a casting director out of New York and we were, we'd go through the list of people that we thought we, we wanted. And she yeah, I heard the down, story and he yeah, said, yeah. we want someone like, like Tim Blake, Blake Nelson. Nelson. Well, let's go after him. So we, we reached out to him and we gave him the script and <laughs> forget this detail. He actually thought we were asking him to be Sancho. He thought, because he's never, he's always, he's not being offered a lot of leading Lead. men roles. And when he found out that, Chris and Tim got on the phone and they talked. He's it kind of switched him around, and he he was he was sold um, by what you just heard Chris how Chris explained what he was attracted to and how he approached the adaptation. And once we all we he came on board, he and started to inform the script in ways that was just absolutely brilliant. And that's all a lot of the work that Chris and Tim did together in the pre-production work and. Even on set, there was a lot of really good conversation and tweaking of moments and attenuation and things. And it's the one thing that I love about this film is that we really, for better or for worse, we resisted the temptation to make this something that it it's not. I think everything is grounded in a reality of the story, and we tried to stay as true to the original novel as much as we could because it was important it, okay. was, it was important for many reasons. To okay, it's grounded for another reason, though, and I can't wait to get into this. It's in St. Bernard. You can't get more <laughs> grounded <laughs> than St. Bernard. I mean, again, I'm from the Bronx, and, and originally that's where I was raised, and, and, I, and I recognize the world that I came from in St. Bernard. And, you know, it, the irony of this film being made in St. Bernard, which, of course, was a Spanish colony at one time, you know yes. that, right? We were we filmed in the Isleno's house. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, oh, I should have recognized that. Right. That was his house. Right. Is the Islanders the Los Isleno's? Los Isleno's. The Islanders. It's their museum, which is yeah. right now an empty house, luckily for us. But Saint Bernard was a <laughs> trip. Okay. Magic. Okay. Tell me about making this film in Saint Bernard, because that for me, I do a lot of work in Saint Bernard. I work with Sydney. I did. I did the Crevasse Twenty Two River House, and I'm working with Ford. I, I say I have a dual passport now for Orleans and uh, for the parish. The parish. I actually have three because I still have a New York passport in me, as most people in New, New Orleans will tell you. you can take the girl out of the Bronx. You can't take the Bronx out of the girl. And that kind of stuff. But what what was that like? I mean, St. Bernard's a crazy place. It was. It's perfect for what we were doing. It is crazy. Tell me, tell yeah. me, give me that context. How did that work for the film? Did you decide to do it there, or how did that come about well, we, that you did it there? I'll let Chris talk about the the magical things that happened. But we were looking for a a, a non place place, something that just. I had, don't know if I'd call it a non place place. No, what, anyway. I, what I mean by that is yeah. that it, it could be anywhere. 
And though we did set it in the wilds of Louisiana, it wasn't very specific in terms of that. It wasn't meant to be like showcasing New Orleans or right, or, right, right, right. or alligators. I mean, it was just yeah. basically supposed to be. You felt like this it could be rural. anywhere. It was rural. Yeah. Um, but there was still, you still saw. If you if you were not from here, you got the sense that you were in this really mystical place, the wilds. But yet we're still in a neighborhood. So it's like you, but not like you. We started off scouting Norco. <laughs> and, we did. And we, you know, we which thought, was good. Which was great, but. We we said, well, what's the other side of this? I mean, because we did find a lot of great, interesting locations there, and it was a neighborhood in this weird. I mean, Norco is just this fabricated city, <laughs> you know, that just the name itself is an acronym, right? Yeah, uh, Northern Oil Company. Yeah, I don't know. You can't, wait, you can't say Norco without thinking. No, New Orleans Refining Company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, my yeah. my father was born in a town called Good Hope, Louisiana, which is currently. Uh, a little speck inside of the Norco refinery. It was completely de- devoured by the refinery. Mm. There's like a little cemetery left. Wow. Mm. So it's a, it's a weird spot too. But then when Jason Wagenspeck came on board and brought us out to St. Bernard, because Trey and I were pretty deep and we were very uh, marinated in the script at this point. Yeah. And we, one of the first places that we looked, and we actually didn't end up using this for some other reasons, was word by word what I had written in the script. It was a place that we would have thought 10 setups, we got to fake this and fake that. You're talking about the club? There's a tower. This was outside. This was the tower and and where he sees the, uh, from which he sees the, the um, prisoners. prisoners. And we w- looked at oh, this place um. and we were like, we could place cameras here and shoot this entire scene and one take. Like, it was so perfect. And everywhere we went in St. Bernard was mm-hmm. that bar I'm trying to recreate an old-timey inn, which is a place you go get water for your horse, you get drinks, you get a meal, and there are rooms to let. Well, there, there's none of that. There's nothing like that here. It's a motel or it's a bar or it's a restaurant or it's a gas station. And there on St. Bernard Highway, I guess it is. On Barracuda. Is the Cuda. The Cuda. And that that was all shot. As it's, was. It's, yes, and it's hard to talk about on the radio, but there's a scene that involves a very well-lit ridiculously lit and decorated bar and we didn't do any of that we brought in like two little extra disco balls but it was christmas lights i knew that i looked at it and i said they all they did was the christmas balls. we rearranged the furniture a little bit just to make more space and it was already dressed for us it was crazy and then those rooms there's a balcony where the rooms are we couldn't shoot inside the rooms because they're apartments but around the back there are five what were hotel rooms apartments in the back, upstairs from the bar, we built the fence. That's it. It was incredible <laughs> that that was there, and that we could go in. Our, our location people could go in, and and twenty minutes later, we have access. We've we've bought them out, you know, for whatever they earned, I guess. And this is also the other thing about St. Bernard is we had we had some big players in St. Bernard on our side um, yeah. that helped. Everybody Sydney. trust them, Sydney. Everybody knows them. Everybody trust them. When you need mm-hmm. a lot of cooperation, people are eager um, to they, help. Yeah, and they people feel like it's a local People are eager to production. help there in general. I mean, that there's a, there's um, lots of myths about Saint Bernard, and and Saint Bernard um, has a, has a challenging, you know, reputation, just like the Bronx. And that's why one of the things I identify with it about is that you know people in New Orleans when you say Saint Bernard, they'll say, oh yeah, Saint Bernard. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, that accent is almost exactly the same as the Bronx accent. It is. <laughs> I don't know if you've been up there. But so 
the guy who is the uh, owner of the club, is that an actor or is that a real person? That is, that is an actor. That, uh, that is an actor. Encore. Because he was so, uh, he, uh, he was one of my favorites the in the movie and too. And he gets a great moment and he just, he just crushed it. He is the one of three actors who weren't local in the whole movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, the two leads, both mm-hmm. live in New York. Tim and Jacob both live in New York. And we struggle to find somebody of that ethnicity and that age who could really act. It's not a big population here. So he came in from Los Angeles. But what, and what a sweet guy and yeah. total pro. Like he was game for anything. Um, he was fantastic. But of course, this is the script that is so terrific there too. I mean, the way he's he's kind of like this, what is going on here? Kind of barkeep. And then he gets poetic, you know, inspired by well, there was Don a, Quixote. There yeah, was it, there, there was a, an earlier version of that character to where that he he didn't speak much. And we it, it we couldn't really find a way to establish that later, so we we dialed it back to where when he said those words, it was a surprise to everyone in the bar in a bigger way. Yeah. Um, but just the fact that he recites Khalil Gibran is 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 enough already. Right. So we we kind of yeah. didn't really have to pursue that tact because it's like, wait, what? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you expect it to come out of Don Quixote's mouth, right? Yeah. When he does his his um his uh, eulogy. But this is kind of the point. If somebody goes around asking everyone to become a poet, people have a poem in them. Almost everybody has something in them that's not, that's not being expressed because nobody's asking them to or giving them an opportunity to. So this idiot falls on his knees in a bar next to a pool table and demands to be knighted with something poetic. Anybody standing there is going to dig deep and come up with whether it's a proverb or a poem or something they learned in school. Nobody asks you or something they wrote. It was just a tr- just constantly trying to set that up to where if, if you just bother to ask somebody to be magical, they, most people can do it and will do it. I don't know, guys. I, I just, um, yeah, I, I love that film, and, and I want my audience to understand. Okay, let's talk about how other people can see what we're talking about because there's absolutely no way they have a clue what we're talking about because well, it's so unusual that they have to see it. Well, so going back to where we are now in terms of the marketing and the distribution, um, we are on uh, several platforms, but the main ones that we want to encourage audience members to go towards if you have Apple TV, uh, you can see it there, as well as Amazon Prime. You can go into the, your Amazon account, and it should be, you know, type in Don Quixote, and you know, it'll come up, or yeah. type in, in my, Blake and, Nelson, it'll it come might up. It might break down my total resistance to doing anything with Amazon, because I don't want to put a penny in the pocket of that guy well, who then has go to way Apple. too much money. <laughs> go to Apple, Apple TV. TV. And, I'm, and I'm, actually, I'm actually an Android girl, because I even resist Apple, but I'll, I'll go to one of the two. Anything else? It's on Google Play. It's on okay. Google Play. But, but you know what's funny is we've we, – because I like that we're talking about the industry in, in this moment of yeah. – of, uh, you, you know, when you make a movie now, you're not just competing with the other things that came out this week in the theaters or the television shows. When I sit down in front of my television, if I want, I can watch The Godfather. You know, it's like I can watch some of the greatest movies ever made. Everything's yeah. available all the time. Yeah. So we're all struggling to get – noticed mm-hmm. and Get then those eyes. it's not the economics are we make more money if you go watch it on apple than if you watch it on amazon 
than if you watch it on Google because we negotiate a rate with each one of these platforms. So any movie you and they respect watch, your again intellectual property. Well, that's that's the upside of self-distributing too is that we still own the movie. Mm. Um, oh, okay. So there's something about the distribution that I don't understand. If you take the small offer from Netflix or one of the distributors and, and they come in because they have so much content to choose from, um, the, the offers are frequently very small. Mm. And when you sign that, they own your movie forever. Wow. They, they own, well, they, 20 years. Worldwide. They want worldwide rights. So that that was the big the big disruptor that Netflix did years ago. They were going in and offering people worldwide distribution, but it was only on their streaming. But yet they were you know you're on Netflix, and a lot of times that's the best deal you can get. We we have not given up any of our well. Let me let me take that back. We do have uh, an aggregator distributor partner, and they are uh, attached to us for three years for USA and Canada on streaming platforms mm -hmm. and certain things like okay. airplanes and, mm -hmm. you know, DVDs and things like that because they helped us uh, basically negotiate a lot of these deals. Sure. And so they're, they're, they're not a true distributor, meaning that they're not going out and distributing it everywhere. But they are been a, they've been a great partner for us, and so that's part of the that's part of the linchpins of being self distributing. Mm -hmm. You can do it yourself, but it's kind of good to get a partner that has yeah. relationships too. So um, I'm a big believer in lessons learned, right? So every day that something screws up, I'll sit with my people who screwed up or or just witness to it and say, okay, what's the lessons learned? What what did we learn from this experience? So what are the lessons learned that you would share with other filmmakers, especially in New Orleans, because we care about seeing this, this industry grow here. So for other people out there, uh, for, for this guy, Umans, for example, I mean, I, I don't know what his distribution situation is and, and, and where his product, which is a difficult. Philip oh, Philip, yeah, for uh, yeah. Burning, Burning Cane. Burning Cane. Uh, my understanding is they're not going to get rich off of what they did, mm -hmm. but they will launch careers. Mm -hmm. But answer my question about lessons learned, things that you've been through in the production of this, whether the writing or the the actual production or the the marketing afterwards. What are some of the, you know, what are the top three four lessons that you learned that you would say you want to tell yourself had from the beginning, or you want to tell somebody else? As they get started. Uh, oh, where do you start? Only three. Where do you start? Um, well, give me a few. I, I'll, I'll say this. I think if you are an independent filmmaker, I, I, I think you, you have to see the long game. And I'm, it's not meant to say discouraging filmmakers from making movies or thinking that. But you have to know the market. I would say that we did a lot of work on the popularity of the title and its name brand recognition and our, our talent. But I think we, we had the market shift dramatically between the time that we got the film financed and shot and the time that we were ready to exhibit it to the public. Meaning, again, that a whole issue of so much content out there. Well, there's that. Uh, when we were doing this, Netflix and Amazon were going to film festivals, and that was the deal to get. 
and they were a lot easier because they were still trying to build their libraries. And by the time a year and a half, 18 months later, when we were get coming out, they had that that business model had changed. They were they basically they were they were focusing. Libraries. That's how fast things are happening. Yes, the, the market changes. That's part of the lesson. Things are things happening happen fast. They spent fast. like nine billion dollars in that time. Period. Yeah, yeah. They, they basically went into like original that. content, and so but they're still they still have acquisitions, but they're not. Uh, they were not as hungry to build a library that quickly anymore. Um, the market does change. You should. <laughs> I don't think in, in this world it's not enough just to be an artist. It's not enough to be an artist and a filmmaker. Part of that responsibility is having a little bit of knowledge of the business acumen or at least have somebody on your team that is is guiding that. There is different worlds, too, uh, between filmmaking. There's the not-for-profit world of filmmaking, and then there's the for-profit filmmaking. I think people have to be very clear which world they want to be in because the challenges are the same. Proving to someone, proving to whether it's a foundation or an investor, why they should invest in your project. And you I just got rejected by the um, Louisiana um, uh, Endowment for the Humanities for a, a film that I uh, worked on for called the Ninth Ward Improv Opera. So it was a video of a live performance based on a very um, uh, improvisational work with dancers and music and people in the audience on the Ninth Ward and what they went through afterwards. And I was very disappointed and um, haven't recovered quite because I just got the notice last week. But um, I mean, you gotta, you, that's you, one you of the lessons you got to go through those little keep, rejections keep, and get over them and if, keep going, right? You're going to do this kind of work. You've got to grow a really thick hide yeah. because there, there, so there's that's no shortage of people thick who are – Thick hide. Thick hide. There's no yeah. shortage of people who are going to tell you that it's not good, it's not good enough, it's not of the moment. It's not, there's a million reasons, and sometimes they're, they're right, but you have to <laughs> – Trey and I decided early on we were making this movie. I would say this is the biggest lesson um, that's that's transferable. There's other things I've learned about myself as a storyteller and a filmmaker that were brutal, um, that you just have to go through the process, I think, yeah. to know. But we used the word inevitable. We decided this was gonna, this project was inevitable, and if it was the two of us and a bicycle and an iPhone, then so be it. But we were doing this. Mm-hmm. And that becomes – when you go to someone with that attitude – it's very different than asking them to ride to, or for a ride on their back. Like, if you come on board, we can do this. Um, it puts a lot of pressure on, on an actor, on an investor, on anybody, versus we're doing this, do you want to come? Then they're not completely responsible for it, and they, they, they understand that you're not kidding because these projects fall apart all the time, all the time, all the time. Everybody's got a script. Everybody's got an idea. And what it takes to go from wanting to do it to doing it, doing it is really just deciding that there is no way that you're not going to do it. And then that you push through of, all the discouraging yeah. parts. When yeah. we, we lost all sorts of things along the way and thought, oh, how are we ever going to do this? And you just do it. I'll say, I'll say here's another lesson learned. And we're probably still learning this lesson for the next 10 years of our lives because if you do come out as an independent filmmaker and, and you, you do – end up maintaining your rights and having to sell these licenses, uh, it, it's, you're, it doesn't just stop. I mean, if you are a producer and you're owning your IP and you're out there and you're on a platform and you've got 
you know, revenues coming in and you have investors to pay out and you have accounting and audits to do and taxes to pay, it doesn't stop. I think I think there's a and, and naively and it's it's a wishful is that you want to make a film that somebody and loves and wants over. and takes it they distribute they buy you out you're gone you're under the next project and you're just you know you're part of the cog but when you're at the forefront of it I mean for all intents and purposes Don Quixote is not is something that's going to be in our daily lives for the next ten years if not forever I mean it just we are responsible for I can it. think of worse things to be in your life for a lot of years than that film. Oh, I can't. absolutely. No, but, it's not. It's not a bad but, thing. I'm just saying that it's it's something no, that I, know. I don't I'm think just people saying, think about. I, 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 it's worth it. It's it's just totally worth I it. I had a director many years ago tell me I was pretty. I was a younger writer, and he, he we were talking about writing and directing, and he directed a bunch of movies. We were working on a movie together, and he said, "Being a director above everything else requires one quality, and that is stamina. That the the time you put in." The the long days you put in when everybody else has given up and you can't give up, when people are sick of you asking for things and demanding things and wanting things and doing things, you do it anyway. Um, there is a certain amount of stamina of just just being, I don't know, stupid I, enough, crazy enough. I think that's a rule enough. that applies to almost any kind of innovative, creative project. I mean, I, I do more administering and marketing, even though I'm a terrible administrator, I keep doing that because I'm just determined I can't stop. And I, 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 I the, the word inevitable works for me. I understand exactly what you're talking about. What else have you worked on that um, you're proud of that I should know about? And I'll say that, ask that of both of you. Uh, I did a lot of the writing on the Charlotte's Web movie that came out about 10 years ago, maybe mm-hmm. a little more. Uh, and that was a similar thing. We got our hands on a book that was important to people, and you feel a sense of responsibility. Um, Is your background in literature somehow? Weirdly, not at all. I don't know okay. anything about literature. I'm okay. by training and often by trade an architect, which is the opposite. What? Like, you're I never an architect? Took, I am. Wow. I never took any literature you're not, classes. You're not a typical architect by any means because I hang around with a lot of architects. Well, yes and no. I can be very fussy uh, and detail you, you, you can't be as tight – I don't know if I can say it on the air. As tight, you know what I'm I'm saying, as architects can be. Yeah, we're a weird breed. Uh, Although I will say filmmaking and architecture have a very long relationship, and they're very similar. In a lot of ways, I only now really understand, particularly the writing part of it. It takes forever to build a building, too. Yeah, and it's just as complicated and just as unlikely, and you work just as hard to do a bad one. Until you do, yeah, which happens. Um, They're very, very change orders. There are change <laughs> orders, there are budgets, there's value engineering, there is poor casting, for instance. <laughs> uh, wow, that's a good concrete failure yeah. pun. Oh, um, double. Yeah, <laughs> boom. Um, yeah, they are very similar. I'm not a literature guy. In fact, most of my background is in family film because the guy that got me involved in this in the first place is a big family film writer. So unless you count the Smurfs as literature <laughs> – because I did. I've written, I've written a lot of things. Hedge. Written a lot of things. My name isn't on one of those. Is uh, is the Smurfs franchise? Because hmm. you gotta, you gotta. Pay you the, and Harry sure. Gotta pay the bills, and Back and there. they're they're kind of fun mm-hmm. in a weird way. If you don't expect them to be something that they're not going to be, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I worked at, with DreamWorks Animation for a long time, and those are hmm. not those kind of movies are not heralded a lot, particularly if you're not Pixar. But I I love I love animated movies because I, they're so pure. I have to tell you that there there are times when I've just been through a lot of stress in in the real world, and on a Saturday morning, and I just can't move. And I just put on one of those whatever, and I don't know anything about them, and I don't know what I don't go to them in the theaters, but I'll put it on, and I'll just say, "Wow, look what they're doing!" It's incredibly it's, difficult. It's amazing stuff. Because you know, if you're making a movie and you have a camera and great lighting, you can point it at Daniel Day Lewis, and it's going to be awesome, really, no matter what else you've done, because he's just magical. If you're making an animated movie, you got nothing. You have to make the characters' eyebrows. You have to make, like you got. You don't have. You have voices, and that's. A big I was just going to say, but then again, you might have Eddie's voice. You can sometimes the voices working on Over the Hedge was hilarious because none of the stuff that we wrote to be funny was that funny. It was like clever and stuff. But then you get Steve Carell, and the fun, the biggest laugh in the whole movie is the line that we wrote that says, "I like the cookie." Which is like not comedy gold when you type it, <laughs> right? But when he says, when he goes, "I like the cookie," you know, <laughs> the whole theater just breaks up laughing. You're like, "Why am I working so hard?" <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All the like jokes and puns and cleverness we worked ourselves crazy on. You get like a chuckle, but you get a real actor and uh, somebody who's really funny. It's like you just, you know, that's so that's so funny. And you, what about you? What was one of the things you're very proud of that you've done? Uh, in this world, in film, mm-hmm. um, well, Beth and I produced another independent film last summer with uh, Frank and Kathleen Monteleone called American Reject, and it was a similar built, um, inevitable project, and that was, I thought Don Quixote was... Can I see that on the... Oh, we're, on? we're still in post-production. We're, oh, we're okay. about to finish that up, and okay. it's going to... It's going to go into the festival circuit, hopefully, in the next year, and then we'll see where we end up. But it's it's a really wonderful, sweet movie, completely different from what we did. Had a whole other set of challenges. But I'm proud that we were able to to be part of that. And um, I would say being in film, my other, other one of the other hats I wear is that I, I, you know, my background is as an actor. And um, I would say that one of the best things I'm proud of, two things I'm proud of in my on-camera career was one i got to play doug flutie in a wheaties commercial i knew it was going to be flutie it had to be (laughs) i I just i remember when i came out of graduate school and my agent said well what are some of your your hopes i said i really want to be in a football commercial like for some reason i just thought that was important not to go you know be in a you know shakespeare in the park or anything i "I want to be on a football commercial and a year later they did they shot this wheaties campaign and they're reenacting you know, all these great moments in sports, and I got the Doug Flutie roll up in Boston. It was great. That, and then Where of course. Can I, can I, YouTube, maybe. Oh, I don't know. I have no idea. I'll bet it's on YouTube someplace, <laughs> I have no right? Idea. Must be. But the thing I'm most proud about, and I think in this marketplace and not pursuing acting full time, and I, the the winds were blowing right, but I did a role the in. The winds were blowing just right. I got cast in Jordan Peele's Get Out, and that to me was one of the best. I'm one of my favorite days so on have you, have you seen it? it? I didn't see it. and um, But once somebody in my office, when we were talking about y'all, said, get out. 
First of all, it's a the, the radio can't see my white face, but it was like oh, it, it, one of the a, most amazing things. And I've, I've got to watch it. I, it's a I fantastic movie, and yeah. Trey is a pivotal character right in the beginning. Uh, I guess since you've grown your hair back, you don't get the, as much recognition, no. but you can see people look at him and realize, oh my god, it's that guy. Yeah, <laughs> the cop. Anyway, the cop. the cop. It's great because I've never had conspiracy fan theories written about me. <laughs> so. Officer Ryan. Yeah, yeah. Because Officer the same Ryan. prop master from Get Out was on oh. Don Quixote, and he walked up one day. Zach walks up one day, and he's got the Officer Ryan name badge from the uniform, and gave it to Ooh. Trey. It was, like, oh. <laughs> that was it. Was kind of that's cool. an yeah. important moment. Um, what's next minutes. for you guys? And also, please, you have another role altogether with the Film and Entertainment Association, trying to make things happen in the state. We had a really, I have to tell you about a moment. I was in a restaurant private room at the Monteleon one day, and we were at a table, a group of us. At the next table were some obvious heavyweights. I mean, you just, you just see them. They're not from New Orleans. They're talking very seriously. They're not really cheery. And I'm saying, these guys are in the film industry, and they're not happy. I wonder what this is all about. So I go, and I ask one of the guys. He said, who are you? And it was like, I don't remember the names, but it was some of the, like, really big film guys. And they were there talking about the killing of the tax incentive, the temporary, okay, you can't have the money until the end. And they were all freaked out about it. And they said, um, we're here because we're really concerned about whether there's going to be a film industry in Louisiana anymore. And I said, oh, of course there is. It's going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. And they were saying, they're looking at me saying, lady, you have no clue. I assume that was back in 2015. Or was that more recent? It could, no, it could be about then. It was, it was when Lee Zurich was doing all those horrible stories about that one stupid company, and he never told the other side of the story about how important the industry was and what was going on. And I thought it was really bad journalism. And to this day, I'm waiting till I walk into him in the street, and I'm going to tell him how bad I thought he did us uh, during that time. The Jackson, these I'll guys be there. Were, I'll be there with my like iPhone really to film serious it. Really serious guys. Park. I'm not. I'm not suggesting you stalk him because he's a pretty nice guy, actually. But you could find. Him. Look, I. I it, 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 shortly. Who, Lee? Yeah. Oh, exactly. Say that again. No, no I mean I can find no, them in the newsroom. No. I'm in and out of the newsrooms all the time doing media stuff. But very, very shortly. I mean, the good news is is that our industry has been stabilized, and that's much to the work that we've done at LFEA. We are essentially the trade organization that is responsible for working with legislators and stakeholders to make sure that we have the strongest, uh, most responsible program um, for Louisiana. And we work very closely with our current governor, with uh, Secretary Pearson, with Secretary Who Robinson. Who we hope gets in again. Yes. yes. Um, he's been a huge uh, reason why we've been able to reestablish ourselves um, in, a, in a very short amount of time. Who? Edwards? Yes. Yeah. It, it, yeah. Really interesting. Yes, and so our, our industry is... So are you getting that word out to all of your people who need to vote? Because, I mean, the only way this guy's going to get elected is if our art crowd, and I, I don't have it on right now, but I wear a, a pin that says art votes. We've got to get our vote out. Otherwise, he's going down. Well, and it's not. Because Trump's going to get his ass, uh, uh, his people it's out. It's not just about art either. It's about finances. Like, yeah. we can't be naive about why they call us Hollywood South. It is entirely due to the film tax credit. If that tax credit were to go away, all of those jobs, all of that infrastructure, will go with it. The, the Hollywood can make a movie anywhere, and they're thrifty because there's too much money on the table. 
Um, and it would be very, very difficult to sustain any real industry without the tax credits. So when you're voting and you're talking about tax credits, it, it's, it's super but the, critical. But on the same, but my, my si- but, uh, but on the is- same side, I need to add to that real quick because uh, what Chris is saying, there's, there's truth in that. But on the, what we've done is that we've created a mechanism that creates a level of sustainability and a level of, of infrastructure stakeholders that uh, is trying to – we started this whole conversation off about that at the film festival there were, what, 75 – Films from the Louisiana Film Festival made by Louisiana artists and and filmmakers. That's and, just amazing. And and so I think you take that and you say that the reason that that is so is because this film tax credit is actually working. It's it's creating the opportunity for these filmmakers to live in Louisiana and make content. And the goal is is that some of those stakeholders then become like your Philip Yeoman. I mean that you know the the Ben Zeitlins of the world. You know that they they call Louisiana their home, and and that that those largesses of revenues, right? The things that they become successful makes us more successful. So it's there there is that that revolving production that comes in here, but it really seeds the the ground for that for the the whole industry to be successful. Well, Tyler Perry just built and has built an enormous facility yeah. in Atlanta. I know. I he's, know about it's that. incredible what he's done. But I know. He's, and we wanted him to do it here. Why did he do that he's in Atlanta? from New Orleans. I know. Why did he do it there? I uh, can't answer it's, that It's question. a long – I'm sure it's a long story. But, but did he start it during that time when the tax credit uh, – He's been in yeah. Atlanta for he's a while. He's been in Atlanta for a long, okay. long time. All but right. what I think what we're trying to say is that we don't want the next Tyler Perry's to feel like they have to go somewhere else to be successful. Yeah. That you want enough of, a, of an question. industry and infrastructure yeah. here to where a guy like Philip Yeoman or some you know, who's like 19 – Who's from here? If if they choose to, and you hope they will, can establish uh, a career and an infrastructure to make movies here. And I so think, I so think, let's also be frank, guys. There is a racial issue involved too. I'm sure one of the reasons why Tyler Perry went to Atlanta is, is some of the undertow, racial undertow here that we don't talk about a lot, but it's there. That's possible. Although Atlanta would be a tough. Atlanta is a, a whole move. different world when it comes to racial issues. Yeah, I mean, I, I I wouldn't be able to talk smartly about any yeah. any of that. Um, but look, there's a backbone here in Louisiana, and and quite frankly, this part of the world is. When you very, say backbone, what do you mean? I mean, there's a backbone in our industry, right? You have a lot of people that live here full time. You have a lot of people that are contributing to the economy, and it and it and it re- truly does. I mean, listen, there's. California and New York had to put incentives in there because they were losing jobs and their economy was taking a hit on it. So you're talking – I mean that kind of gives you a little insight, an insight into the effectiveness. Oh, and, fa- okay. but, and, and I will say this. Louisiana has been a leader in these types of programs, and I think the, the, the smart thing that we've done is that we've made it responsible and we've allowed – one of the most – the proudest things that – one of the best things that we've done in the program – is that we have a reinvestment fund that is going to be coming due, which will be reinvesting some of the dollars that are earned in the tax credit and funneling it back into Louisiana residents, workforce development, education, film grants, things like that. We also have pieces in there that uplift Louisiana storytellers and filmmakers by giving them extra uh, pieces of the incentive that they can utilize uh, to make their own movies. So, Uh anyway. So... uh that's it? I'm getting a message from Jazz <laughs> that says that, uh, yeah, we, we've run out of time. I'm going to have you guys back sometime uh, to talk more about this, but let's, let's uh, cap off by saying you must see 
the true Don Quixote on either Amazon Prime or Apple TV or and be sure be sure to rate it be sure to share it on all of your social handles uh, you can write a review because online reviews are everything now uh, audience those, those algorithms will pick up those 10 stars and it starts to push you towards the top a little bit more so and also please please work on getting all of your people to vote this yes. is real serious because they don't want to nobody wants to vote anymore because you think it's just a, a big cynical mess which it kind of is but if we don't vote it's going to get worse I can't wait to vote yeah I'm kidding I early vote this is Gene Nathan. It's Crosstown Conversations. I've had a wonderful time, and um, thank you guys very much for being with us. Chris Poche and Trey Bra- Trey Brabant. Well, that was that was close and wonderful. Well, oh. uh, maybe I'll start saying that. <laughs> I know. Now you're like those potatoes. Brabant. Okay. Brabant. Yeah. Um, who, by the way, looks so much like a Landry that I keep thinking you must have Landry blood. Well, I used to not have any hair. I used to be bald. And I would get stopped in the rouses all the time. Well, you still look like a lantern. I mean, there must be something. There's something back there somewhere. I pitched, anyway. I pitched, I pitched him. I said, maybe I'll be your body double. Mitch needs a body double? <laughs> well, he did. I, I, he I'm, might, I'm, ta- I'm talking about Moon even more than Mitch. Oh, okay. All right. This is Gene Nathan, Crust on Conversations. So much fun. See you next week, Tuesday night, 6 to 7. And go see the true Don Quixote on the air and rate it. Thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you.